We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And this is Disorder. This is a podcast where we examine a pressing global issue like climate change, tax havens, or neopopulism. We discuss how these issues have come to be part and parcel of our era of global disorder. And we finish by proposing solutions to restore effective global governance that could ultimately help us find a semblance of order in this mad, mad world. This week, we're going to look into illicit money flows. Across the world, the increasing scale of kleptocratic state capture and the sheer size of the financial incentives that global elites have to turn a blind eye are really a major contributing factor to sustaining and growing our era of enduring disorder. So what can be done? How can we incentivize major Western economies to say no to dark money and close the loopholes in the international system that facilitate tax evasion? We're gonna try to unpack this point. How and why do dark money flows cause political disorder? And what can be done to stop the spread of dirty cash? Thank you, Jason, for that terrific introduction. This episode matters so much because it's not just about corruption in foreign countries. It's how these illicit financial flows are coming back to bite us in our own domestic political systems. In the 1990s, I used to work at the British Embassy in Washington on illicit financial flows, tax havens, money laundering in the British overseas territories in the Caribbean. And I used to cooperate with the American law enforcement agencies. And we used to spend a lot of time talking about these problems in the British overseas territories. And I always thought of that as just contributing to the global good and combating corruption. I didn't associate at that time how these problems would eventually come back to bite us And that's what this episode is about. It's about how our own open economic markets, our own professional financial services have enabled illicit money to come into our own political systems. And the two interviews you're going to hear in this episode are truly shocking. Well put. It's about the blowback. We opened the windows to get a really nice breeze and to save money on the air conditioning, but the mosquitoes came in. The wind was fantastic and we're much more comfortable. The problem is we could have made a screen and then opened the windows, but now the mosquitoes are already in. It's much more complicated to get them out. And that's the crux of where we've gotten to with these neoliberal economic policies. The whole global system is essentially predicated on less and less regulation and cross-border flows. And I also didn't understand this when I was working in D.C., Alex, because I was promoting the interests of major multinational companies when I was executive director of the U.S. Libya Business Association. And I would be banging on, why don't we force the Libyan Central Bank to be more transparent? Why don't we force them to have better reporting requirements? But now I get that it's not just Russian oligarchs and Equatorial Ghanaian dictators who are invested in this system. It's also Wall Street and K Street. And that didn't make sense to me initially, but it does now. Our vested actors want a similar system of these free flows. It suits them. It absolutely suits them. And as we're also going to be discussing during this episode, it's difficult to get global collective action on this. And Tenor, our first guest, talks exactly about this being a systemic problem. And you can't just tackle individual ad hoc parts of it. We need to have a systemic 
strengthening of our all the financial systems across the world. But the problem is countries are competing for this money. You know, countries are competing to lower their corporate tax rates or offer incentives for companies or businesses to come to their shores. And so there's kind of disincentives to create a level playing field, although there has been some encouraging action. In 2021, 130 countries did sign up to an agreement to establish a basic 15% minimum corporate tax rate. But even that, there's no guarantee that's going to eventually go through and hold. The enforcement is the the issue there. But I think you sketched that really well, Alex. There's a race to the bottom dimension. People forget that under President Eisenhower, who was a Republican, taxes on corporate profits were two times as great as they were in 2017, and that the top marginal tax rate for individuals was nearly 90%. And in the UK, certainly under Attlee and right after the war, there were also high corporate taxes. Then there was a gradual race to the bottom, which began roughly in the Reagan-Thatcher years. And this race to the bottom dimension makes the global collective action that you sketched quite difficult. And I have a fear, which is that if we have a new Cold War with China and we have a hot war with Russia, it's very, very difficult to play ball with them on these issues. But Tena sketches out ways that because people don't want to spend money in Russia and China, the EU, UK, UK overseas territories as well, and the US and our overseas territories is actually enough. If we had the Western democracies on the same page here, we could make good inroads. All right. So why don't we get to that interview with Tena? She's been researching kleptocrats for years In her role as research fellow at the Department of Politics and International Relations of the University of Oxford, she's been engaged with working out how to track illicit money and how it has become central to almost all politics in Eastern Europe. You kicked off this interview, Jason, by asking her about when finance really began to become deregulated. In a way, you know, the seeds of this uh, transformation were really there after the Second World War and in some ways also before. And that is to be linked with the end of the British Empire and what the British Empire was. I mean, in a way, you know, with the biggest empire that ever was ending, Britain managed to reinvent itself in some way by using the networks provided by this empire and turning the main uh, sense of it into a financial superpower, really. So while it was losing its status as a global superpower, it was transforming itself into a financial superpower of global proportions. And this really is you know, something that accompanied the development of this uh, phenomenon that today we tend to uh, define as kleptocracy. Yeah. So there were great hopes on the part of Western economists, generally called the Chicago School and associated with Milton Friedman. The idea that if we deregulated financial flows, we would generate more wealth. And that may have been true to some extent. But as we now know, much of the British and American populists felt that they got the raw end of the stick, that It was the 1% who were benefiting from this increased growth. Yes, they may have had a rising tide slightly lifting their boats, but not as much as the cost of inflation. So do you have an example of when the neoliberal economic policies shifted for regular people from being a wealth generating idea to being a destructive force? The whole of Eastern Europe really is a, a massive cautionary tale in that respect. The early 1990s were a period very messy, very disorderly, but at the same time, they were indeed a period of great optimism. There was this idea that all these uh, principles that the Western world uh, representing the beacon of civilization brought with itself to this post-communist countries, that if you were going through this list and you were checking this list, uh, that everything will be fine. We're going to get more transparent societies, more equal societies, less corrupt societies, among other things. And yet we see 20, 30 years down the line, in many respects, we had some of the same leaders that were there during the 1990s still in power or associates of these same leaders. We see that there is a very widespread perception that inequality 
didn't disappear. Quite on the contrary, that wealth inequality has gone up. And generally, there is this feeling of being let down. And I mean, another anecdote that relates to um, this notion of uh, extreme wealth inequality and of how the elites of this world prey on their countries and their people is the beginning of the pandemic. In spring 2020, uh, you had a situation in which in Nigeria, for instance, the Nigerian elites were no longer able to go to their doctors. Why? Because their doctors are all in London, in Paris or in Geneva. Those who became rich because they were emptying the state coffers of their countries, the health systems of their countries were so inefficient, so poor, that they could not get their cures there. Karma struck back, but unfortunately not for so long in a way we're back where we were before the pandemic also in that sense. I really like the concept you just mentioned about karma. The word I was looking for was blowback. Because if I understood correctly your opening remarks, you're saying it was the West, and in particular the UK with the London as this financial centre. It was that decision to deregulate and to open our economies and have this financial boom that may have made us rich in the immediate term, but actually opened a channel for kleptocrats and illicit financial flows and dirty money to exploit that very deregulation. And now we're all experiencing the blowback from that. For me, the defining moment was Brexit, where there is quite a lot of suspicion that Russia was not unhappy to see the UK leave the EU. It was part of fracturing the Western alliance. So do you think we're now experiencing a form of blowback because of our decision to pursue these financial liberalization? Yeah, I think blowback is definitely a very good term in many respects. So yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, pursuing this uh, economic model in which finance was king made it so that the financial services and also a lot of other professional services in the UK were put at the service of money wherever it came from and whichever form it took. And in that sense, you know, this deregulation, it became a snowball effect in which it became harder and harder to rein it back later on. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned Brexit because uh, obviously one of the arguments of global Britain and of how we make uh, success out of Brexit economically is not trying to regulate, trying to put a stop or to try to diminish these issues that a constant deregulation has brought with it, but instead to deregulate even further. And so now we have a blowback in that sense, so that it's kind of the only economic path possible for the growth of GDP and we're seeing. But on the other hand, we also have a, a geopolitical blowback of sorts. So suddenly in uh, February, March 2022, when uh, these were the months in which it seems that our policymakers in the UK suddenly woke up to the issue of professional services in the UK were basically reinforcing the very elites in Russia that were in a way also reinforcing the autocratic system in Russia itself. Yeah, So we have different kinds of kleptocrats and different kinds of exiles, not all those who leave Russia are kleptocrats or oligarchs, but undoubtedly professional services in London were providing both shelter and legitimization to a lot of those family members and uh, relatives and friends and the oligarchs themselves who have participated in making the Kremlin such an autocratic place as it is, has become. So I really believe that there needs to be a leap in policymaking and recognizing kleptocracy as a systemic issue that is transnational, that really is something that happens in the developing countries where a grand corruption is the norm, but it is also enabled by us in the West through all these professional services and also systemic issue that transcends the geopolitical minutiae and the geopolitical scenario of a given moment. Otherwise, there will not be a suitable policy response if we don't go beyond these uh, geopolitical instances of the present day. Do we have kleptocrats in our own country who are also benefiting from the system? And is that part of the problem that we also have American and British kleptocrats as well, embedded in the British political system or the American political system. I mean, do we have our own kleptocrats as well? 
So right now, yes, we are still defining them in terms of those countries where grand corruption is rife, is the norm, and therefore they're also able to extract from the state coffers and also to influence policymaking in such a way as to legalize what is illicit, right? So there is this whole array of effects. But at the same time, I mean, in a way, don't we also have people who uh, basically are able to influence policy through their money? In many respects, the answer is yes, we do. So for instance, one aspect of a kleptocracy intended as money and reputation laundering are philanthropic donations. So if you're a kleptocrat, it's not enough for you to hide your money. It's important for you also to burnish your reputation, to have a good standing in order to enjoy this money fully and to be able to blend in with the global elite, right? So the way you do that very often is really like to buy the reputation, to buy this immortal part of yourself, as Shakespeare has put it, yeah? The philanthropic donations, for instance, to think tanks, charities and universities are part of it. And of course, they are really problematic. There are two times, you know, as problematic because if you give money to institutions that produce research and they're used also to shape in some way the thinking of the publics and the policymaking as well, they can also shape these narratives too. So it's problematic in many respects. We have been researching philanthropic donations from autocratic regimes, but at the same time, while we were speaking to the gift managers at universities and asking them about their procedures to vet donors and so on, we realized that it's not only those who are from developing countries, from autocratic regimes that are a problem. And very often we have people who are UK citizens or US citizens who are also part of this issue. One name that everybody will recognize immediately, for instance, is Jeffrey Epstein. Not so long ago, he gave a very, very significant donations to a range of Ivy League schools. And for some time, his uh, huge sins were forgotten. I think that if we dig in, we can learn what a kleptocrat is. A kleptocrat is someone who benefits from what had been formerly state assets or public individuals' assets and gains them at a cheaper price and somehow merely siphons off what had been either a formerly state asset or individuals' assets. So what I want to draw out from you is what is the essential meaning of kleptocracies and kleptocrats, given that we are in this deregulated global financial order? I think your phrase siphoning off funds is very apt. And I think that definitely goes uh, within the uh, definition of what we think when we think of a kleptocrat. I would say that the modes by which this happened change, change across geographies and change across time. Privatization period uh, that occurred in all the post-communist states and other states across the world. And that definitely was a moment in which the rules could have been gained in a very specific way. And when being close to power ensured you a lot of, you know, methods in order to get economic capital, right, out of your social capital, your connections, yeah, and your cultural capital. Then obviously, once you have this accumulation of capital, the initial one, it's easier to consolidate it later on. And you can find other ways to game the system or also to become a legitimate business owner, right? There are also these trajectories of people who later on are able not to bypass the rules so much any longer because they already have made themselves quite a lot of money in dubious ways at the beginning. So it kind of depends from place to place, but I think that uh, you put your finger on the right topic but by saying, you know, the siphoning off of uh, resources within a context that basically bends the rules, right? That is what we think of when we think about a kleptocrat. Could you explain a little bit more about how Russia has used illicit financial flows to advance its foreign policy? Yes. So Russia has done it in uh, many different ways. It has used, from an economic standpoint, it has weaponized its uh, energy resources in order to support political supporters. So for instance, through gas schemes, through intermediaries in gas schemes, it would give rents, so bribes to individuals that were further 
its aims in specific countries. Another way by which it does so is also through the manipulation of information. We've seen that the bot farms, which were discussed very widely as, oh, is very indicative of how this network and this interlinking between the various pillars works in the Russian case. What do we do about it? Why aren't we tackling it more effectively? And what can we do? We need to really see this as a systemic issue. We can't keep responding to this very real problem of kleptocracy that branches out into consequences that are not only economic, that are not only considerations in terms of human rights for other countries. They're also very real in security terms as well. So we need to see this as a systemic issue of which we are part. So we, we made the example of Russia, who now is a is a systemic enemy, but whose money until very recently we welcomed with open arms. So my point is we really need to act soon. We need to act fast. We need to act much earlier than what we're doing now and not respond in an ad hoc way, but see it systemically, see our role in it, and really target all the countries as a part of it, and not only our short-term enemies in that moment. There is an extent to which even the things that you have proposed as solutions are a question of national-level policies. But I want to push beyond that to the fact that on this podcast, the Disorder Podcast, we're concerned about the fact that there is not global level collective action. And that, yes, would I like the EU and UK and US and their own individual levels to have more rigorous schemes for the due diligence of various monies? Yes. But I don't think that will solve things because it doesn't get at the collective action problem whereby there is a competition, particularly in the tax haven space, to race to the bottom. Therefore, we need supranational bodies. What do you think a NATO for kleptocracy or a NATO for dark money could look like? I completely agree with you that this is a problem that requires global solutions or at least transnational solutions. It can't be just a national level response. So, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, for instance, that goes in, in favor to your argument is uh, the fact that some countries such as Switzerland have, to a certain extent, implemented policies that have steamed some illicit flows. But the geographies where this is facilitated today are changing. So the United Arab Emirates and Dubai in particular are have become really one of the foremost uh, places that facilitate money laundering. And yet, you know, I would question your doubt about what can just, uh, in inverted commas, the UK, the US, the EU do. And this is because if you look at how tax havens basically are constructed, where they gravitate towards, you have three main circles. You have basically the oldest one that actually, although we don't really perceive it as such, gravitates in Europe. You have perhaps the biggest one, right, which is the one that is has been built around the British Empire. So all the various BBIs and Gibraltar and Hong Kong and so on and so forth. So you have Britain at the center of the second one. And then you have a third one, which is American. If these three systems, if the US, the UK and the EU where to work together, I really think that that would be a game changer in terms of the world's response uh, to kleptocracy. We're going to head to a short break now, but afterwards we're going to hear more about how the UK itself has become a major player in the flow of dirty money. Welcome back. Tenna has just explained how illicit financial flows are truly a multinational problem that can't be solved by the American president or the American Congress passing a law. 
it needs a global big picture solution. We're going to dissect some of the possible ways that this can be done at the end of this week's show in our Ordering the Disorder segment. One thing I think our listeners may not have thought about is the fact that kleptocratic behavior isn't just reserved to Russia or Saudi Arabia or Nigeria. In other words, kleptocracy isn't just about, quote unquote, stealing the oil money. It's rife in the UK and the US too. And we all face what Alex has so elegantly termed blowback, which is how policies that were established for one thing to make a buck for some bankers at Goldman Sachs have these unintended consequences. Right. I mean, I do think that since the war in Ukraine, there has been a lot more scrutiny and far more awareness in the UK about the role of illicit money. I mean, it's not for nothing that London was called the London laundromat, but I think it has become a little bit more mainstream and there has been some action taken to try and clamp down on the kind of oligarch money we've seen. But I think what Tenna has helped unpack for us a little bit in her interview is how that Russian money, and it's not just Russian money, when we'll hear from our next interview, we'll talk about how other sources of money are now coming into the UK to replace the Russian money. So we've addressed one bit, but we haven't addressed the whole system. But what Tina talks about is this reputation laundering and this political influence buying, that when Russian oligarchs or oligarchs from other parts of the world come into the UK, they want to buy into our class system and our society. And they do that by buying access and influence through political donations, charitable donations. And then they can donate to think tanks and think tanks produce research ideas. And those research ideas can end up influencing our political choices. So that is one very, very frightening aspect of this issue. So we've talked a lot about the big picture, whether it's reputation laundering or illicit financial flows. What about in your policy role when you were in Washington working on the treaties behind the scenes, or maybe when you were ambassador to Georgia? And this is a place where Russian oligarchic money, whether it's the Georgia Dream Party or elsewhere, is quite prominent. How did you experience these things? Well, I would say, like everything, now that I look back on my career, it has a surface level appearance and then an undercurrent appearance. So on the surface, as a British diplomat, we advocated for good governance, transparent business practices, anti-corruption practices. And every year, the Foreign Office would send guidance to embassies all around the world saying, as you support British businesses lobbying for business opportunities, it's against the law to offer bribes. It's against the law to indulge in corrupt practices. There was a very clear guidance. And I do not know of any diplomat that would turn a blind eye to that. That was genuine. And we would also lobby other countries to clean up their acts. However, here's the second side of the story. We also aggressively marketed the skills of British City of London services, business advisors, consultancies, insurance brokers, deal makers. And that is where the illicit financial flows comes into it. Those services are geared at sort of legally allowing money to come into UK systems or to find safe havens. And it's like this gray area between tax avoidance and tax evasion. When does it cross from one to the other? But what about you, Jason? You've worked directly with businesses and you worked in the murky world of Libya. So tell us about what you saw there. I think that I came to this quite naively. Yeah, join the club. When I represented companies like Pepsi, I assumed that they wanted an open market whereby there were transparent rules of the game because their product is better. I experienced something quite different that you as a multi-billion dollar company might not want economic reforms because what you want is that you have the WhatsApp number of the decision maker. Reform is scary when you're in the market and you already have some degree of market capture. So what we need 
is some regulation and structure. Just an unbridled free market doesn't produce even results. Yeah, we are as Americans and Brits and Europeans living in societies where value is placed on producing goods efficiently and effectively for the lowest cost in the best way. And I don't want to say that all of the supporters of Reagan and Thatcher were corrupt because that's not the case. A lot of them wanted to open the window to get the draft of a pleasant breeze that was going to be wealth generating and wealth creating in. And then we've ended up with these mosquitoes that have come in. So to help us better understand how dark money is the mosquito that comes in when you try to have these open markets, let's turn to the author of Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics, Peter Gagan. It's a brilliant look into how the flows of illicit campaign financing have completely disrupted modern democracies and are this blowback effect. I began by asking him about the role of Russian money in the UK. What's fascinating with that is it's a story that goes back to the 1990s. It goes back to this wave of inviting post-Soviet money into Britain, money from the you know, collapsing industries and the privatisation boom that took place in Russia. And the more money that came in, the more basically the system started to accommodate dirty money. And what you saw as political actors then, you know, 25 years ago, British politicians didn't really get any money from Russian donors or Russian-connected donors. It wasn't part of the story of who funds politics. Fast forward 25 years, and it's been a huge part of the story that funds politics. So the system itself then starts to accommodate around, around this dirty money. Throughout human history, money has always bought influence. And influence can be used to generate money. So am I right in saying that what's changed is that the big money, particularly in the UK political system, is not necessarily UK money? Yes, when you see a guy named Mansoor, he may have British nationality now, but the money is Egyptian and some of the goals might be Egyptian. So am I right in saying that it wasn't foreign money and foreign agendas penetrating the US and the UK political systems in the 1980s? There's two aspects to this, and especially, say, in the British political system, it's not dissimilar to the US. The interesting thing about the British political system is that it's a lot less money. The US is running on much higher multipliers of money, which in some ways might make you think that the situation is more extreme and worrying in the US. But actually, in the UK, it means it's smaller amounts of money by access. So it's actually easier for new players to come in and buy access than it is in the US. But returning to that issue that you flag about foreign money, I think two things are going on. One is that you're right. You're seeing this huge, big rise in a number of people like Mohammed Mansour, who you mentioned, who's the treasurer of the Conservative Party, a former minister under Hosni Mubarak's government in Egypt, a billionaire with massive business interests. He bought San Diego Football Club earlier in this year. So he's international, but very much of Egyptian. A lot of his big businesses are based in, in Egypt. And he is now the major donor to British politics. Politics. In 2023, he gave £5 million to the Conservative Party, which is the joint record for the biggest donation ever. And he says he's going to give more. There's every chance he will be the big funder of the Conservative Party in the next election. That's part of what's happening. So there's a kind of aspect of foreign money infiltrating our political system. But the second aspect of it, too, is what we've seen is at least in Britain, a, a real shift in the nature of who gives money to political parties, especially uh, the ruling Conservative Party. Traditionally, they were kind of corporations and kind of scions of industry, big business. There was money coming from the city of London, but it was often from like the big banks and people who worked in the big banks. The big shift you've seen, at least in Britain, is a move towards more and more hedge funds, people who run hedge funds giving money, big financiers, speculative capital. And speculative capital is less interested in nation state politics than it is in international, what's happening on an international scale. And what does it mean? It kind of means that you've got political parties that are not necessarily as interested in what's happening inside their, the country's borders as they are in where money can be made internationally. And one aspect that was interesting with the Brexit referendum was that a lot of hedge fund money funded the campaign for Brexit. And after Britain voted to leave the European Union, the kind of pro-EU money dis disappeared from the Conservative Party. It was replaced in large part by money from hedge funders 
from speculative capital who can often see returns even in the choppiest of markets. And sometimes actually volatility is actually good for hedge funds. What is of interest for these donors, whether they're hedge funders or foreign capital, is that it's often very different to what traditionally has been the interests of political party funders. You mentioned a point which those of us in the know we've known for years, which is that UK politics is cheap. This always makes me wonder, great, you can run a political campaign to be prime minister in a key election year for less than 20 million pounds. What is preventing a Labour leader from becoming a Bernie Sanders, outraising the Tory candidate by five times just through 10 pound donations? If you would just get 20 million Brits to give 10 pounds, that's 200 million pounds. So I I don't understand. Are Brits less charitable at the grassroots level than Americans? They don't have the cultural heritage of that. What can be done to change this perspective, which would defeat the problem? There isn't the same culture of giving. Money from, in politics in Britain is either on the left, traditionally it's been from the unions, and on the right, traditionally it's been from private donations. And there's been very little attempts actually to really harness grassroots people. I think it's fair to say it's interesting. I think, Jason, you've got the outsider's useful perspective on this, because there hasn't really been that that says, look, if we got, if a million people gave £20 a year, you can count that in lattes. You know, in London, that's about the price of six or seven lattes. I often look enviously at the United States, where I can look up a disclosure log in the United States and see who's given $5 almost to political parties. Whereas in the UK, we just don't have that. The ceiling for uh, declarations is 7500 to a party, so, which in the US, is it's much lower. So there's a kind of quid pro quo that we've never done in Britain. So we've never done this kind of like, look, we'll open our politics to mass movements. Instead, it seems to always be around private money and trying to attract private money. That system seems prone to disorder. How can there be no registration process? Because it means anyone can buy any media service and we don't know who people are really acting for in the advocacy domain. It's a huge issue. And as, it's like, as a journalist, I love the fact that I can search what's happening in the US very easily. I can search disclosure all really easy. The US is great. We don't have that. And the wider lobbying piece in Britain is really bad. So back before he was elected in 2010, David Cameron described the then Tory leader as, as lobbying as the kind of the next scandal waiting to happen. He talked about the quiet word and, and lobbying. And he said, look, I'm gonna, we're going to fix lobbying. He then brought in really, really poor lobbying registration. That means that basically almost 99% of lobbyists don't actually have to register. The lobbying register in the UK is a joke. And even worse than that, so in the UK, after two years, you have to ask for permission uh, if you want to take a job after, within two years of leaving office. We don't really ask for permission because even they can say no and you can still take the job. So there's nothing you can do about it. But a day and two years after David Cameron left office, he joined, became a lobbyist for a company called Greensill. But because he was an in-house lobbyist, he was working for them, he didn't have to register. And we now know that David Cameron has turned into a huge scandal in Britain in 2021 when it turned out that David Cameron was lobbying for Greensill, calling up his friends in government. And this was a really controversial company that was basically going down the tubes, uh, whose entire business model was a failure. And he was constantly ringing all of his friends in government. And not only were no rules broken, nothing happened afterwards. There was a bunch of inquiries and nothing happened. And the reason I'm saying that is because this whole problem is, is actually the problem writ large of how Britain runs. And when it comes to foreign access, it's the same. There is talk and there's often been talk of having some sort of foreign registration, foreign registration for politics, but there's been no action whatsoever. And it's, it is really the story of Britain. There's a scandal around something. There's a lot of light and heat. People like me go and write op-eds in newspapers saying something should be done. And here's kind of what it looks like. It's not rocket science. Here's what you could do. But almost nothing ever changes. And I think politicians go, actually, well, am I really going to get involved in this? I'm not going to win many votes for it. It's not something that my uh, constituents are going to turn around and thank me for all that much at the end of it. And I might be stopping myself having a lucrative career afterwards. Has the Ukraine invasion changed things? Is there just going to be Nigerian and Arab and Chinese money doing the same thing going forward and only Russian money has been hurt or, or, or has there been real reform? I think it's the latter, not the former. I think it's damaged 
Russian money coming to the UK. But what it has also done is forced the UK, because of the nature of the UK economy, to start looking for other money from other places. Saudi money is a good example of it, UAE money. The nature of the UK's economy means it will actually continue its political class. It will continue to court money from other spaces and places. And you can see that in political donations. So there was, when I remember reporting before the last general election in the UK in 2019, I was reporting about the influx of Russian-linked money into the Conservative Party. A lot of those donors have fallen by the wayside. One or two are still there. A lot of them have fallen by the wayside. But they have been replaced by Mohammed Mansour, the Egyptian billionaire, by Nigerian oil tycoons, by Indonesian polyester tycoons. So they've, the Russian money is gone, but new money is in. And similarly, if you look at registers and records of government meetings and of investment, there's a lot more Saudi involvement in the UK, the UK economy. And in some ways... That's actually probably deeper and more long-lasting than uh, the Russian money aspect of it is. So, no, there hasn't really been much of a, any real, if far as I can see, significant change, because there hasn't been any legislative change. Depressing. But on a more optimistic note, I want to be a polyester tycoon. I mean, could I wear one of those Travolta suits and be like a New Jersey 1970s polyester tycoon? In what policies would I use my dark money for? Would I combat the wool growers association well interestingly on polyester and its role in dark money richard fink who was basically the conciliary of the Koch brothers the famous Koch brothers who spent billions influencing american politics he first got to meet them he went to wichita uh, in kansas where the Koch brothers that was their power base in the late 70s wearing a very nashy saturday night fever style polyester suit and fink managed to get them he had this idea of how you could influence the structure of politics by almost in a steve bannon way culture influencing cultural institutions influencing think tanks universities so polyester has a role in the dark money story and what would you want to do with it i think i think sometimes people mistake the relationship between political donations and outworkings some people give money to politicians because they want a particular policy it's not unsurprising in the UK, property developers have always been big donors to the Conservative Party. Because all it takes is a few little rule changes here and there, especially at the local level, to make big change, to make big money. But as I was saying, I think there's a lot more where you're talking about international capital. It's often a lot less about small policy change and more about being in rooms. It's more about having access. And sometimes it's just about knowing you've got that access to power. And that access to power being part of your, almost your own self-image. There's a lot going on. There's a lot that's not necessarily always one-to-one transactional between political parties and political donations and individuals. My personal experience backs up that analysis. When I ran the U.S. Libya Business Association in D.C., I had the incorrect idea that I would be helping the companies I represented make money. And I had no problem with that because I think that the services that they provided in Libya would be useful for the Libyan people. What I had a problem with was that they didn't want to make money. They wanted to block new entrants. In other words, we have this choice deal or let's not have a trade mission to Libya because then more companies would get to meet the Libyan leaders. And that was why I resigned over governance issues when I found out that Really, at the fundamental level, a lot of what the enduring disorder is about and dark money is about is blocking. And it isn't a free market. I mean, I'm not on the hardcore right, but I'm a capitalist. I'm not a socialist. I want a market whereby people try to make better services and sell their services. What's so surprising is that these supposed neoliberal capitalists are actually about market capture. So let's get to the who's to blame, because we've mentioned that the dark money and the polyester tycoons of this universe may not be throwing around their billions in the ways that you might imagine. Now, who benefits from allowing this corrupt system to endure? I would say it's not necessarily people who are just trying to make a buck, but it's disorderers, neopopulists. In your work, how have you uncovered these people? What is their agenda? And, and how do we, as the regular people of this world, suffer from the dominance of that class? I think that's just what you're talking about with this. It is, that is the dominant class within this. And to give one example, it was interesting for the United Kingdom in 2022. Liz Truss somehow became the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. As soon as she became the Prime Minister, people who'd never seen Liz Truss before saw her and went, how in the name of all that is holy is that person the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom? She cannot string a sentence together. What she says is incoherent. She can't answer basic questions. You know, I have seen more impressive people sitting behind the checkout in my local Tesco. <laughs> like, how <laughs> she got there? And what was fascinating was, you know, a lot of the think tanks I'd written about from Tufton Street, the Institute of Economic Affairs, the policy exchanges of this world, had been 
boostering her for a very, very, very long time. And similarly been very influential on the backbenches on the right of the Conservative Party. And this is the story that's kind of writ large. You're talking about people who are pursuing policies that are not very popular. And so you, you can't get there in, a mar- in the great marketplace of ideas, which is also one of these great ironies. You know, the marketplace of ideas doesn't really have a space for these ideas. So what you have to do is get access, keep the rigged systems that exist, the systems that are broken, you have to keep them in place. You have to do everything you can to not change those systems. And often it requires relying on the most bizarre arguments where, you know, we couldn't possibly declare the donors to think tanks because they would be under threat from violence. It's like, what well, based on what? Political donors are, are, they're declared. There's no violence against them. That makes no sense. But you don't have to make sense in that marketplace. So I think that's what you're seeing. There is definitely, I think it is fascinating. There is a class of people. And it's also worth remembering that there's only a specific class of people who understand and have seen how this world works. There's lots of people who make loads of money in business and don't go near any of this, partly because they don't like the stink of it, but also they don't understand that they're not part of that set. For whatever reason, they don't get involved. So it's a subset of a subset who are creating this very closed political economy. And that's one of the issues with this. The political economy of the economy of politics is very small. It's very small, it's only a certain amount of money that's been chased around it. Well, Tenor and Peter have shown exactly how the flow of illicit cash is part and parcel of our era of global disorder. And it's not just through disruptors like Russia using dark money as part of their own shadow foreign policy, but countries like the UK, our own countries, encouraging deregulation in the pursuit of capturing market share and value and allowing that money to come in and corrupt our own systems. And the problem has got out of control. Money is an invisible, intangible force that influences all of our lives. And how do we regulate it? Is it like water? It will always find a way to flow despite the tightest barriers that we try to construct. So how do we order this disorder? one of the most shocking, astonishing things is that donations to political parties in the UK are not fully transparent. The other aspect of the UK that really frightens me is the connections between the media barons, the political circles and the financiers. These cosy clubs, these cash for peerages, That is another area where there is just not enough transparency. We need to open that up. I find it really frightening. The other point, and then then I'll shut up and let you come back on this, Jason, is the point that Peter made. How the hell did we get Liz Truss as prime minister? And how we got her is because she was pushed by these think tanks whose funding is not transparent they are not required to reveal their donors. And that's how we got her. It wasn't a public vote. It was a vote by a handful, a few thousand Conservative Party members who also can register in secret. How is that possible? So the solution is transparency. I think that we can't discredit in terms of how we get someone like a Liz Truss. People have come to believe in this, Alex. They believe in something called the Laffer Curve. I played backgammon with a a very nice guy in his late 70s, and he frequently tells me, you know, Jason, how can you live over there in Europe or even in New Jersey? I base myself in Florida, so you pay less state taxes. And the miracle is, of course, if you pay less of a tax rate, the state will get more taxes. Oh, is that so? Yes, it's the Laffer Curve. If you decrease the marginal tax rate, the economy grows so much that the government makes more in taxes. Obviously, the Laffer curve is laughable. It is. But I mention it because it's been disproven by the last 40 years of economic theorists on the right and the left. But we can't discount the reason that we end up with these policies is actually because people in Shropshire and Yorkshire and Georgia and Ohio genuinely vote for them. 
And we have to win the argument of ideas, Alex, that yes, there's going to be more of a draft if we open the windows, but we can open the windows with screens and then the mosquitoes (laughs) won't come in. And that... Argument you're really obsessed with me. this. You're obsessed with this mosquito well, analogy. I'm on vacation in the south of France, and do I see on the Airbnb listing climatization? No, I do not. But I assume if it's going to be 42 degrees, there's probably going to be air conditioning because I'm paying over 300 euros a night. No, we don't do that in Europe. I'm like, well, no problem. I guess we'll open the windows. I've never been in a house in America where there are not screens. And of course, you know, I'm busy texting. We're like, well, there's going to be screens, right? She's like, why would we have those? It decreases the flow of, I'm like, no. So of course the mosquitoes come in. This is exactly the analogy of the right regulation. I have the perfect solution for you. You need to wear more polyester. <laughs> As a newly minted polyester tycoon... I want to see you in your Saturday night fever polyester outfit. This is what we think all Americans do, by the way, that you wear polyester jumpsuits. Absolutely. You wear these sort of all-in-one jumpsuit things. Excellent. So you're saying they have magical anti-mosquito properties? I might try it out. Well, they cover you and they may you may need to wear a sort of a screen on your face. <laughs> <laughs> but um I think we're coming to the end of today's show. I think, personally, that it is always going to be hard to find the perfect regulations for this. I still think the solution is to insist on transparency. I'm all about the transparency, Alex, but you need enforcement. And if you have a simple magic bullet solution like transparency, and that's my way to order the disorder too, You just need to have the major countries, EU, UK, US, be willing to enforce this transparency rather than just there's a new crisis in the news and we do a knee-jerk gesture where we treat the symptom. If we could just treat root causes, this is not an unsolvable problem. And we heard that from Tana. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. It's clear that most of the globe's major countries need to work together to get this issue under control. It can't be solved by poorly implemented nation-state-only solutions. And until strong collective action happens, these illicit money flows will continue on and on and on. And so, to help us keep trying to order the disorder in this mad, 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 mad world, tap follow right now. If you do that, you'll never miss an episode. Plus, We're on social media at Disorder Show. And if you want to read more about this or any other of our episodes, just visit the links in our show notes. And as we sign out, I really want to thank our producer, George McDonough, our executive producer, Neil Fern, Goal Hangers, Jack Davenport, and also our former program managers, Zena Starbuck and Guy Fiennes. This show wouldn't happen without them. Next week... There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. We'll look at the land of the ungoverned, how spaces without rules across the world are allowing various disruptors to thrive. But until then, we wish you all an orderly week.